We're starting this series today, the, what we're calling the nine words of Christmas, and we put these together because we, this really is a good chance to bring somebody who doesn't know a whole lot about Jesus or somebody who's kind of walked away from that and maybe you know has a sense of wanting to come back. This is a, a good chance for you to invite people into that. Um, so we're going to... We're going to jump in. And can we, this is the very end, Jonathan. I must, have, I must have sent it to you wrong, if you could take it to the beginning. Um, but over the next um, four weeks, we're going to go through the nine words of Christmas. And in a second, I will explain that to you, where that comes from. So just a quick tell you, you guys know my story. I think you've heard it enough. But... Um, Charlie Brown Christmas and the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, um, those stories were my stories. It's very emotional for me. I was the Grinch, and I was Lucy. Growing up, I had no clue what Christmas was about. Um, for me and my brothers, because we grew up unchurched, right? All my friends, the only ones who didn't go to church, and which I thought was cool at the time. But to me, Christmas was trees and tinsel and just all that stuff, especially the gift giving was the big thing for me. That's, that's what it meant to us. So, you know, the Christmas morning rush, that was, that was Christmas. We'd get up early, try to roll our parents out of bed, you know, we were never up before five except that morning. Try to get our parents up out of bed. They'd get out of bed, and we'd do all the gift opening, you know, the frantic tearing of all the paper and all the excitement of the new G.I. Joe that had real hair. That was a new thing back in the 70s, and the new matchbox cars and the Nerf football, the new Nerf football, all of that stuff. And, you know, that, that joy and all day having fun with those toys. But even way back then, there was... Um, I had this sense that something was missing because we'd play all day with the toys and by the end of the day, even as a kid, the excitement of that would already have started to wear off. I talked about this with idolatry, that things that are not infinite only have a temporary lasting sense and even by the end of the day, there was this sense of that big thing was gone and now it's like, okay, these are cool, but what's the next thing? And was always left with that feeling, that emptiness, that sense that there's something more, that, um, that those things ultimately did not satisfy me. And my brothers, I spoke, what my, one of my brothers heard me talk about this at Bear Trap years ago, and he came up afterwards and he said, I felt, I mean, I felt the same way, that, that way. And so that was part of, I had several starting points for the beginning of my journey, but that was part of them, was that was that longing, that sense that there was something more was very important in my own journey. And so as I began to explore and to try to figure out what was life, what was the meaning of life and all of that, um, eventually came around to the Bible and that's a whole different story of how it took me a while to get there. But um, when I came around to it, I was really surprised to find that the core of the Bible wasn't what I thought. Um, and so... That's what this is all about. Like, what, what is the, the meaning of Christmas really is the core of the Bible, and that's what I want to share with you today. 
in these nine words in the next four weeks. And here's what I learned. Here's something I want to talk about that was really important to me. Because I grew up in a very religious environment. Hayes, Kansas, uh, very Catholic area. A lot of the Germans who went there, the Volga Germans. And a lot of my friends who were professors went to the Methodist Presbyterian Church, just different churches. But still very religious at that time. And I knew from my own friends um, what religion felt like. Because they would come back Sunday and talk about how bored they were and these things they did. I would hear about my friends having to do things on Fridays or on Wednesdays. And um, I had this sense of what religion was. And this is kind of my definition of religion. It's a system of duties and observances that are intended to please God, whoever He is, and to gain some benefit from Him. Um, it's, if I do good things, then God will, I'm chalking up points, but at some point He's going to owe me either entrance into heaven or eternal life, or He's going to owe me a good life. He's going to owe me a life of no suffering. But it's this idea that this is just what I kept seeing around me. People would do things, but the whole purpose of what they did was they would get something back from God in return. And it was very un, that was very uninteresting to me, and I didn't care anything about it. I could tell, you guys have heard quid pro quo a lot lately, right? That's the whole thing with, uh, with Trump, you know, was it a quid pro quo? And what all that means is, is I give you something because you will give me something in return. There's this expectation. And from all my friends, when I would talk to them, that's what Christianity was to them. It was religion. It was this thing that if I do these things or if I do this event, then I'm forgiven for a week of my sins or whatever. And it was very much like a business deal with God. I give God what He wants, and God gives me what I want. And I really had a feel of that, and I had zero interest in religion. I wasn't interested in that kind of thing. My brother went uh, taught in Taiwan for like five years, and when he was there, one night he was going to have an exam. I mean, he was going to have an exam the next day, and his students came up to him, and they said, do you want to see what we do to prepare for a test? And he said, sure. And they said, well, um, meet us this afternoon in downtown, and they went downtown. And when he met them, they took him to the temple of the god of education, the god of knowledge. And next to the temple was a, like, a, like a quick trip kind of thing. And they went in there, and they bought Coca-Cola and little cans of Pringles, because the gods tend to, their, their taste improve over time to where they're, they're very, they have very modern taste. And they got the Coke and the Pringles, and they went into the temple, and they lit candles, and they said prayers, and they laid the Coke and the Pringles at the altar of the god, so that, what do you suppose they were wanting? So that he would give them a what? Give them an A on the exam the next day, right? And then my brother, being the kind of guy he is, he, while he was in there, he had, a pop, he had a can of Coke, and he popped it while he was in there, which was desecrating the whole thing. So they had to run and buy more pop, more Coca-Cola and Pringles and go in and say more prayers so my brother wouldn't get struck by lightning and killed by the God of education, but he made it out okay. Um, but, you know, we hear that story, and we're like, that sounds foreign to us, but the reality is this is the default of the human race, is religion, is this idea that I think I have to do things for God, and if I do things for God, then He will do things for me, then He owes me. And that's the default of everybody. Even when we follow Jesus, it is so easy to get in that mentality. You know, like if somebody, if something bad happens to somebody who follows Jesus, and we say, well, why is that happening to them? They have been such a good Christian. That's a religion mentality. Do you realize that? That's saying they did things and so God owes them a good life. And this is, this is kind of the default. And when I got into the Bible and started to read it, I found that this is not at all what the Bible is about. 
and I want to share with you what I found because to me it's all the story of Christmas and it's the core of what Jesus is about. And it all starts with God who's the creator. Isaiah 40, 26 and 28 says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. We just did that. Who created these things? Do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am? He is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the whole earth. He's the creator of the whole earth. And not only the whole earth, He's the creator of each and every one of us. Psalm 139, 13 to 14 says, You made my whole being. You formed me in my mother's body. I praise you because you made me in an amazing and wonderful way. What you have done is wonderful, and I know this very well. So God's the creator, not only of the universe, but he's the creator of me as an individual. But there's more. There's more to the story. That not only am I created by God, but the Bible teaches that I'm loved by God. And I'm going to take some passages a lot from the Old Testament that speak of his love for his people there. But when you get to the New Testament, you find out these truths are true of every human being that he has ever created. In Isaiah 44, 2, God said this, I'm your creator. You were in my care even before you were born. And that's really significant because what religion is, is religion is I have to do these religious things to earn his approval of me. And once I do this, then I gain his approval. But what Isaiah tells us in is I was in God's care before I was ever born. That I don't have to do anything religious at all to earn his care. Isn't that significant? Isn't that good to know? I don't have to go to a temple, to a church. I don't have to help the poor. I don't have to do anything to earn his care. I was in his care before I was even born. Ephesians 1.4 says that long before he created the earth, he had us in mind and had settled on us as the focus of his love. I was the focus of his love before I could do anything to even try to earn it. I already had his love. In Isaiah 44, 3 to 4, God said, I'm the Lord, your God, the Holy One, your Savior. You are precious and honored in my sight because I love you. I mean, when we see the word precious, what do we think of? What kind of things are precious to us or should be? Yeah, that was, what, what kind of things are precious to us? Especially to a parent, what's, what's most precious to you? What? Yeah, your little children. And God says that when he looks at us, we're precious to him. And we are honored. You know, usually the, the lower honors the higher, but we are, He honors us. We're honored in His sight because He loves us. In Jeremiah 31.3, it says that I have loved you with an everlasting love. As far before you were born, as far back to whatever, that my love for you is an everlasting love. In Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes, can you read those next two words with, with me? He takes what? Great delight in you. He rejoices over you as singing. This is how God looks at the people that He's created. He, we were in His care before we were born. When He looks at us, He takes great delight in us, like any parent does towards any children, and rejoices over us as singing. I love this passage, um, and some have heard me talk about this before, because with each of our children, when they were born, we kind of made up a song for them. And not the prettiest songs, especially the ones we totally created, but um, anytime one of our children would be sick or not well, or you just wanted to show affection, just holding a baby in your arms and singing over them the song that we had made for them. 
So when I became a father, suddenly this verse became significant to me because I understood as a father this idea that God rejoices over what you were singing. Do you have that sense of God as your father, that he delights in you, that you are precious to him, that you were in his care before you were born, that he, he rejoices over you as singing? Is that your image of your standing before God? Because that's what the Scripture says. I don't need to do anything to earn his love, his passion, his care. And here's what this means, by the way. It means that every one of us is priceless because we're infinitely loved by the infinite creator of the universe, designed by the infinite God of the universe. And that means there is no price. You're priceless. There's no price that could, that could make what you are. You are. You're, you're, you're invaluable. And that's really significant because I think a lot of people today need to hear that. So created by God, fashioned by Him, loved by Him. But not just that, we were created for a purpose. And I've talked this principle before, that the Lord's made everything for His purposes. And again, I don't have my cell phone up here, but uh, how about this thing? This was created by somebody. Anything created has a purpose. What's the purpose of this? Yeah, to create fire, hopefully to light candles, not to burn things down, right? Um, the purpose of this, my iPad is, among other things you know, so I can do this, right? The purpose of this, whoever created this, what was the purpose of this? To hold my iPad at a good angle so it doesn't slide around. So everything that's created has a purpose. And I think it's easy to see the purpose of things, except there's one thing that God created that when you look around the world seems like that thing has no sense of its purpose. Or there's, for every hundred of those things, there's a hundred different purposes they're living for. And what would that be? us, right? Human beings. So what were we created for? What were we created for? Jesus was asked that question one time. A man came and said, Jesus, what is the greatest thing? What is the greatest command? What's the most important thing God wants us to do? And you know his answer. He said, this is the first and the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Love him with everything you are. Love him with all of your passion." Love Him with everything. The first time I read this, when I was new to the Bible, um, it reminded me, now not specifically this, but it, here's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of like a love letter. The kind of things I would write like to Pat, you know, in Bible college, where in our little mail room that we had in there, and I'd go in and we'd stick little notes, and I'd write little things like, my dearest Patricia, how, oh, how I love you, I I love you with everything that I am. I love you with my heart and all my soul. I love you with my strength. I love you with my hands and my arms and my, my lips. Could we do that in Bible college, Pat? Could I love you with my lips? I don't think so. That was not allowed. So uh, that was meaning a future reference that I hope to one day love her that way. But this, do you see this is like the language of lovers? To love somebody with everything that you are? That's the thing that God wants. That's the thing He asks for is love. In Deuteronomy, I love this passage, um, 30, 19 to 21, where God said, Today I set before you life and death. Now choose life that you and your children may truly live. And this is life, to love me, to listen to my voice, and to cling to me. Because I am your life. This is life, to love me to listen to me, to cling to me. 
And again, becoming a father made this so powerful to me. Because do you know what I want from my children more than anything? I want them to love me. I want them to listen to my voice. And I want them to cling to me. Ask any dad, right? I assume mothers are the same. This is the thing we most want from our children. Do I want their obedience? Oh, sure, that's nice. But my children don't exist to obey me. I talked about this in idolatry. The thing I want more than anything in the world for my children is what one word? What would you say? Love. Love. If I had a child that was totally obedient but who did not love me, would I have any interest in Would you have any interest in that? None. No interest. And this is exactly what God is like. So he says, love me, listen to me, cling to my voice. In Hosea 6.6, he said, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to show love. I don't want your religion. I want you to have an intimate relationship with me. I'm not interested in you doing things to earn my approval. What I long for is an intimate relationship with you. And in Exodus 34.14, says, he is a God who is passionate about his relationship with you. God is passionate about his relationship with you. So I'm created by God, amazingly, wonderfully made by the creator of the universe. He passionately loves me. And what does he desire from me? What is the thing that he most wants from me? If you were to summarize it in one word, what would it be? Love. He wants my love. And here's what I learned just in reading the Bible. The thing that I didn't see around me in Hayes, Kansas very much, but this, that the Bible and Jesus are not about religion, but it's about a what? Could we say that again? It's not about religion, it's about a... Maybe a little louder. It's not about religion, it is about a... It is about a relationship. And specifically, we learn an intimate father-child relationship with the God of the universe. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Now, some, some of us or some have probably grown up not with a good father relationship. So don't measure... God's fatherhood by that. Human fatherhood is measured by His, but this is the kind of relationship He desires. As a dad, do you remember the first time you saw one of your children? How everything changed? This is God. It's the kind of relationship He wants. Can you still do that? Karen has this eye thing that I can't do. He wants, the Bible describes this relationship not only as father-child, but as husband and wife. I'm going to go past that one fast because I don't know who that strange man was <laughs> that married Pat long ago. Here's the current guy. Uh, that, that intimacy that you can have with a husband and wife, the Bible talks about the relationship having that kind of intimacy. And it talks about it a third way. It talks about it as friends. I don't know what I'm doing to Skylar in that picture. Skylar, do you remember this? Huh? That guy's got hair. That guy's got hair. I know. That's, uh, and we remember what happened about 10 minutes after that, right? That was a good... But this relationship of friend, right? Think of your best friends, people you really care about and love. 
That's me when I was young and had hair. (laughs) (laughs) But he wants a friendship. I just want to focus on that one if I can. James 2.23 says, The scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called, what was he called? God's friend. People in religion. My brother, I remember, he told me, he said, after they had this encounter at the temple, he asked, his, he asked his students, he said, can I ask you a question? Do you love that God? And they're like, well, of course not. In fact, they don't want to be around that God because they're afraid of it. So as soon as you do your thing, you get out. No relationship, no relationship. But God wants to be our friend. Exodus thirty three eleven. the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And Jesus so powerfully said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. God created me wonderfully, beautifully, designed me exactly as he wanted me to be. He, cre- he passionately loves me. Did so before I was even created. Before he created the universe, I was on his mind. Nothing I need to do to earn his approval. And then he designed me, first and foremost, to have an intimate relationship with him. Father-child type relationship, a husband-wife, and a friend. Friendship with God. I consider my family my friends. My best friends. We hung out last night, played games. This is the kind of relationship that God longs to have with us. So the Bible is not about religion. It's about a relationship. It's about friendship. It's about love. It's not about a business deal at all. It is not that I do something for God and then He, therefore, does something back for me. Because love doesn't work that way, does it? Love just serves out of care. Philip Brooks said this, the greatest danger facing all of us is not that we shall make an absolute failure of life, The danger is that we may fail to perceive life's greatest meaning, fall short of its highest goal, miss its deepest and most abiding happiness. That's the danger. That's the danger. And the thing we were created for is a relationship with God. And if you miss that, you miss everything. You miss everything. So I want to talk just for a minute kind of in moving towards the end, um, because I am sure there is somebody here who doesn't have that relationship with God. Maybe this has piqued your interest, I don't know. But I want to speak for just a moment to you, that if you don't know God, I want to speak to you about the way that God works with people who don't know Him. First Kings 19.12 tells a story where God comes to meet a man, and I don't remember the order. But the man's waiting for God, and suddenly, and he knows God's going to show up, and there's suddenly there's a giant earthquake, shakes the rock, shakes him to the foundation. And the story says that God was not in the earthquake. And then, if I remember right, a fire sweeps over the mountain, this amazing, awe-inspiring, powerful fire. And it says that God was not in the fire. And then this huge wind comes, wind so strong it shakes the mountain. And it says God was not in the mountain. And then there was a small whisper. 
And it says God was in the whisper. And so if, if you are on that path and you're just not sure about all of this, here's one thing I want to tell you. God passionately loves you. He created you for a relationship. There's nothing he would long more than to not have that father-child relationship, that friendship relationship. But the way that he approaches most people is through a whisper. And I've done this with the internationals, and they always love this word, but there's a word for this, and it's called woo. Can you guys say that with me? Woo. Can we do it one more time? Woo. Now, woo is a word love. Can you say it in kind of a romantic, kind of a, I don't know, kind of romantic way? Can we do that? Like, you got to raise the eyebrow, like, woo. Can you do that? Woo. Woo. Okay. Let me tell you about woo, because most guys know woo. Girls, I don't know if you know woo, but guys know woo. Rarely will a guy come to you, if they're interested in you, will they come into your face, full face, full blast, full, they, rarely will they just come to you and say, I want you, or something like that, though I did do that to Pat as a joke before we started dating, um, but that's not how they'll do it. What they'll do is if a guy is interested in a girl, if he's smart, what most guys will do is they will put to use woo. And I think most of you guys know this. What woo is, is you subtly, you try to drop little hints to her that you're interested in her and you're hoping to catch her attention, right? Here's what woo looked like in my relationship with Pat. When I started getting interested in her, we had common friends and so we knew each other. And in, in where we went to school, my dormitory was like this and her dormitory was over here and my room was on this side. And I could look out my window and I could see her come out of her dorm in the morning. And we had the same class at 8 o'clock. And I had timed her, and I knew when she came out the door how long it took her to walk down the sidewalk, walk up by my dorm on the way to the classroom. And I could perfectly come out of my dormitory, out of the door, on the sidewalk, just as she was arriving. And, oh, Pat, what, how amazing that we met, like, just, just totally amazingly for the 20th day in a row, you know, that, we've, that, that I just happened to be out here at the exact time you were arriving here. Oh, could I, would you mind if we sit together in class? Or uh, the thing I always remember as I was becoming more attracted and had an eye on her is I'd show up at the cafeteria and I'd always come in and the first thing I'm doing is I'm looking around what table she at and then I would see her, you know, she's over there. So I'd go get my food, I'd be in my tray and I would head over by that table like this, you know, have you ever done, you know, walking, <laughs> standing by, circling the table, looking around and then Pat would go, oh, Garen, are you looking for somewhere to sit? Oh, oh, yes, I am. And she's, please sit here, and so I would sit there. Um, I know a guy from Missouri who, when he was in college, his wife, for, to make money, sewed clothes. This stuff happened back in our day. People would type papers for people and sew clothes, okay? So she would sew clothes. He would, he'd get up every day, and he'd like pop off a button, you know, and then he would take it to her. And so he's showing up at her place like every twice a month, wherever she was stationed, and so she would sew the clothes, and then he would just happen to sit there the whole time and have a conversation. This is called woo, right? Woo is you do subtle little things to try to grab their attention. Um, here's what my woo kind of culminated in. My, the guys eventually, you know, they're all kind of watching this. They're trying to check her temperature. They're talking to friends, trying to figure out, has, has Pat caught my woo? And they had this idea that they thought she had it. So they're like, this is the night. We've got it. You got to call tonight. So the guys, we come in the dorm room, and this is back in the old days. We had dial phones in our dormitory, you know, four numbers. So they're, uh, they give me the talk and all that, and they've got me all pumped up. And so I, you know, I pick up the phone, and I dial, you know, Zzz, 
no, I can't do it. I can't. I don't. I'm not sure the woos worked, guys. I think I do, need to do a little more woo. They're like, no, no, Garen, we know. We've seen it in her eyes. She's got the twinkle. It's the time. So I picked up the phone, you know. I just, I'm not sure, guys. Went through that three or four times. Finally, I did the last one, and I let it go. And she answered the phone, and I'm like, hello, you know, oh, Pat, it's Garen, and you know, hey, you want to go have pizza and Mountain Dew this Friday? And then she's like, yes. And then, then I'm, I don't know. I probably just hung up to him. You know, yeah, well, can you believe it? I don't, I don't quite remember, but I was pretty excited. And the guys were all excited because the woo, for what we could tell, had worked. And I want to tell you, this is, I'm going to explain in a minute why, but this is how God approaches most people, is through woo. There's a great danger in woo. And the guys who've done it know. What is the great danger? There's a huge danger in woo. There's a big risk that you take with woo. Do you guys know what the risk is? Huh? Okay, rejection. They totally miss it. Right. Skylar knows. Did you hear how strongly Skylar said that? For four years, Skylar wooed Brandy. And, uh, but she finally got it. But Skylar knows. Yeah, the great risk of woo, the great risk of speaking to people in a whisper is that they'll miss it. And the connection never happens. And God takes that risk so many times with people that He comes to us in a whisper. He does little small things trying to catch our attention, but things that we might miss, trying to draw us to Him. And again, the risk is that He might miss it. So why does God do this? Why woo? Why does not come, God come in His full power? As C.S. Lewis asks, why does He not come in a way that's irrefutable and irresistible, that He would show up in such a way you would have no response but to simply respond to Him? And the reason is because He desires your love. He wants you to want Him, and He wants you to freely choose Him. Do you know if God came to you in full force, do you know what your likely response would be? What, what would your likely response, if He came to you in full force, His full power, His full majesty, His full holiness, what would our likely response be? Huh? Fear. That's not what God wants. He wants our love. There's a story of a German prince, and the father wanted, him to, wanted to find him the most beautiful bride in all of Germany. And so he, he arranged to take him on a tour through all the villages, and he sent a word out that he was going to send word out that he was going to have every village present a woman from the village to perhaps become the princess. And when the prince heard it, he said, I don't want to do that. He said, because if we go with my full retinue, my like the carriage and the, the military and the horns blasting and all that, when we come into a village, he said, what's going to happen is one of two things. They're going to either, they're going to put forward a woman for me, hoping that they can get a relationship with me and take advantage and maybe they can get in high places. So they'll put somebody forward to use me and take advantage of me, or they will be afraid of us and our power and they'll give me somebody purely out of fear so we don't come back and conquer the village. And he said, that's not the way for me to find a wife. He said, what I want to do, he said, I'm going to go to every village dressed as a pauper, as a poor person. And I'm going to show up like a nobody. And I'm going to see who, who falls into love with me that way. And who chooses me on that way. And I'll know that that person ha loves me for who I am. They don't fear me for what I could do or they don't want the things that I have to offer. That's what God is like. God comes to us quietly and woo because what He wants is my love. 
That's what he longs for. So God doesn't want your religion. He wants your love. Specifically, he wants you. He wants you. We were created by and for God, and as our creator, he desires a real and intimate relationship with us. He loves me, and he seeks my love in return. That's what the story of the Bible is about. That's the core. That's the core message of the Bible, and that's the core message of Christmas. If you're here today, and you're like, I don't know this God. I'm not even sure he exists. And if you're intrigued, I want to make a small challenge, because I prayed a prayer. like this long ago, when I learned that there's this God who was not only created the universe, but who designed me intimately, who loved me before He created the universe, and who longed for relationship. And I'm like, now that I could do. I'm not interested in the religion stuff, but this I could do. But I wasn't sure He was real, and I prayed something like this, God, if You are real, if You're truly there, if it's true that the thing which You most desire is an intimate relationship with me, then I want that. Please draw me to yourself. Do more little things that catch my attention because I'm watching. Things that only you could do to draw me to yourself. And here's God's promise in Jeremiah 29, 12 to 14. God said, when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. Isn't that a great promise? So if this is you, I challenge you to pray a prayer like that and see if God doesn't, out of His love for you, answer that prayer. If I were to summarize what I've said this morning, it's this, in Romans 8.31, it says this. We sing a song about this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Could you say that with me? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that great? And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you are with God. I don't know where you are with life. But I just want to end by saying this. God is for you. He created you. He loves you. He longs for relationship. God is on your side. He's got your back. He is for you. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to do well. Isn't that a great promise? This is not a God of religion that He's just sitting and waiting if you do the wrong thing, He's going to blast you. And if you do the right thing, well, He'll give you whatever you want or some of what you want. This is a God that is for you. And those are the first three words of the meaning of Christmas. God for us. Could you say those with me? God for us. You're going to have to come back the next few weeks um, if you want to know the other nine words of Christmas. But in my opinion, you can't just talk about God's love and just stop there, right? Don't you have to worship the God who loves? And don't you have to sing about that love? There's a song that I love. Come on up. There's a song that I love that says, I could sing of your love forever. And when I think about God, when I think about who He is, when I think about His love for me, the love that Christmas represents, is that not a love that you could sing about forever? Is that not a love you can sing about forever? I want you to stand. Would you stand with us? And let's sing about God's great love. Do you not find God beautiful? Are you not in awe of who He is? 
So let us during this Advent season, let us live like people who are loved recklessly and who recklessly love our God and our Creator because there's a watching world longing to see people like that. So with that, you are sent.